Amen. Lord, we don't just sing those words, but that is our prayer. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you desperately. We cannot accomplish your will for your glory apart from you, so we surrender to you today. Even just, just take a moment in your seat right there. I know this is, we've already had a moment of interaction, but just interact with the Lord for a moment and submit to him again. Lord, we submit our wills to you. Say, you are God and we are not. And we need you, Holy Spirit, to lead us into the way of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As Jimmy mentioned, we are in a sermon series called Establishing a House of Prayer. And we've been working off of a definition for prayer that will come up on the screen. That prayer is union with God through praise, worship, and thanksgiving, which is what we've been doing, and communion with him, walking and talking with him, and then partnering with him to see his plans come to pass. And that frames our whole series that we've been doing. We're going to talk today about where two or three are gathered. If you're a note taker, it's the title of the message. But before we jump into the teaching, um, just to be just honest with you guys, it has been a really intense week in the Murray household. Um, my wife and I, and I have permission to say this, we had a lot of conflict this week, uh, and it was, just, it was just an intense week, not just in our marriage, but um, from several other angles as well. And I got up this morning and was planning on running through the message a couple more times, and I ended up just needing to meet with God personally and find home again. And I have um, these prayer sheets that, that I've had in my Bible for 20 plus years now with different prayers, scriptures to pray. And, and honestly, this is home for me, finding God through prayer, through his word. And I'm so thankful for the word of God. Different prayers like the Lord's Prayer, which we'll talk about today some, uh, the I-O-U-S prayers that uh, come from the Psalms, which we'll do here in just a moment, uh, Aaron's prayer of blessing in number six, and so many others. And I just want to encourage you, if you don't have home in God, um, getting a few tools, that's why we put together what we put together, uh, helps us get into the grace of God again. And I, I want to take you into a couple of those prayers this morning, uh, because we don't want to just teach on prayer, but we want to be a praying people. We want to pray together. And one of them came out of Lamentations, because I started thinking about, God, thank you that your mercies are new today. I, I just woke up feeling really down. Uh, I felt like I was in a really dark place, to be honest. And just amazed that regardless of the failures of the past, regardless of the pain and the pressure of the present, that God's mercies are new today. But I was thinking about where that passage uh, comes from in Lamentations 3, and actually if at the very beginning of Lamentations 3, if you read this, this is a lament. Uh, the author, the, the nation of Israel, they're in a very difficult place with exile and persecution. And, and chapter 3 starts off, he says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, God's wrath. He, God, has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. This is what the author was feeling in that moment. And he goes on for 19 more verses, just pouring out his pain, accusing God even, talking about all those who are attacking him. And, and I, 
share this because not only was I in this place this morning, but I just felt like God put this on my heart to share because there would be some people here this morning that, man, it was all you could do just to get here this morning and you feel like you're in darkness without any light. But what I want to encourage you with is where he turns a corner in verse 20. He says, my soul continually remembers it, talking about his pain, and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He wasn't feeling what he's about to say. He's calling it to mind as an exercise of the will. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. These are great on picture frames and bumper stickers, these verses, popular verses, but really, our souls have to latch onto something. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're in a really dark place, in fact, um, I, I am in that place, and, and so just, you have permission. I'm the preacher, so if you're struggling, you have permission this morning. Uh, what I'd love for you to do is, if you feel like, man, I'm in a dark place without any light, I just need prayer, just slip up your hand. We're going to have several points of of response today. Thank you for your boldness and your courage. If you're near somebody who has a hand up, just put a hand on their shoulder real quick. And I'm just going to pray this passage over us today. Father, thank you for my friends who are being bold and acknowledging where they are, where they feel. And Lord, we often so, um, we feel like our souls are bowed down within us. But this we call to mind. And we do so by faith on behalf of my friends this morning. And therefore we have hope Your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies are new today. Great is your faithfulness. You are our portion, says our soul. And Lord, I pray for everybody who feels like they're in darkness without any light, that faith and hope would rise up in them this morning and they would be uh, encouraged in their spirit to make a declaration of faith that you are who you say you are in Jesus' name. And one other prayer. Um, This is, I love these four verses. There's going to be a a graphic that comes up on the screen. The IOUs of the Psalms. I take this from John Piper. And it's just a prayer of preparation. I try to pray on a daily basis. And I'm just going to pray through it. Invite you to kind of have a time with God with me as we pray through this. The I stands for incline, the O for open, the U for unite, and the S for satisfy. Father, would you incline our hearts to your testimonies? Bend us, blow spirit of God in the direction of God. Just in my mind's eye, I see those trees on windswept plains. Because of the prevailing winds, they're bent in a direction consistently. And God, I pray we, our souls would be bent in your direction, inclined to, to your word and your person. Open the eyes of our hearts that we would... Behold, wonderful things from your word. Jesus, you are the word. Open our eyes this morning to see Jesus, we ask. Unite our hearts to fear your name. If there's any stray fragment of our souls going after other loves, any wayward affections, bring us back into a place of integration and devotion to you and satisfy us with your love, O God. Help us to taste and see this morning that you are good in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, James. One more time. Gosh, James, thank you. You're amazing. What a gift. Make that grand piano sing, my friend. Well, um, 
I recently, uh, recently turned 40. Uh, hard to believe, I know, but um, premature gray, but turned 40 and have been reflecting on the fact that I've been in pastoral ministry for uh, going on 20 years now in some form or fashion, which is hard to believe. And being a pastor is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's such a joy to walk alongside of people, help them grow spiritually, help them grow as a person. But the other edge of that sword is that if I don't walk in a manner consistent with Jesus, with the way of Jesus, it can be really damaging to people as a pastor. Um, a couple months ago, I was driving my kids to school down Valley Mills, and I was in the middle lane, and there was a car in the right lane that drifted over into my lane uh, without acknowledging that I was there, either unaware or, uh, or just chose to not acknowledge my existence and nearly ran into us with no blinker on and then eventually drifted into the left lane. And so I pulled up next to them and gave an extended stare uh, at the driver. You might call it a glare and, and was immediately convicted and that may not sound like a big deal to you, but I was just fast forwarding. I mean, just being a Christian should be enough. But as a pastor who's on a stage from time to time, I was picturing that person walking in through these doors, seeing that driver preaching in the microphone about Jesus and thinking, man, what hypocrisy, you know? So if that's you, I repent. It was wrong of me. And this is an invitation for you to use your blinker and to consider other people and stay in one lane. It's not just driving, right? This uh, hits home because, you know, I'm a dad of four boys, and so many times I'm at the table or the couch trying to spend time with Jesus, praying, uh, or yeah, I wrote a book called The Father's Heart, and in the middle of writing a book about the Father's Heart or praying, my kids are rambunctious, and they're loud, and, you know, the, the irritation builds, and I raise my voice, I'm like, cut it out, I'm praying, you know? And, and so we're saving up not just for their education, but for their counseling as well as they come of age uh, to deal with, you know, my dad was a pastor, but he, you know, I get it. And, and that's what keeps me up at night, the lack of integration, that we have this vertical dimension to our lives, this spiritual dimension, our walk with God's, but we have this flesh and blood horizontal dimension as well with our tangible relationships. And that's why about 15 years ago, a friend of mine uh, who's a pastor, he said, hey, Mick, your ministry will only ever be as effective as your marriage is healthy. Your ministry will only ever be as effective as your marriage is healthy. And he was calling attention to that fact, that there is a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension, and those have to be in alignment. And I want to expand that since we're talking about prayer. And I want to suggest that our prayer life will only be as life-giving and effective as our treatment of others is Christ-like. Let me put that another way, and I'll have a slide up on the screen for you. If there's one takeaway today, it's this, that effective prayer is dependent on how we love others. Effective prayer is dependent on how we love others. And what I'm not saying is that there's some formula for transactional prayer, that if we put in the right inputs, then we get outputs from God, and we can control and manipulate him in that way, where A plus B plus C equals D. But where there's not a formula, there is guidance in the scriptures, and there are conditions for how we have an effective prayer life. Uh, Jimmy talked about some of these conditions a couple weeks ago. You can go back and listen to that message that we pray in accordance with God's will. We don't just pray whatever we want. James reinforces this idea. But we pray in accordance with God's will. We check the motives of our heart. 
Um, we're committed to God's process. Often he has to deal with the prayer even as he's answering prayers. I feel like that was my week this week. Uh, last week, Vincent talked about how our humility, our intimacy, and our repentance increase our authority. And I want to expand on that thought today, this idea of humility increasing our authority. And again, that effective prayer is dependent on how we treat one another. So originally I was asked to speak on Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, which are going to come up on the screen, these two verses. Jesus speaking to his disciples. And by the way, if you have a Bible, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Matthew 18, and sometimes it helps to see the text yourself in front of you. you pull out a phone or, or open up a tangible physical Bible. Verses 19 and 20 in Matthew 18, Jesus speaking. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, at first glance, these two verses seem pretty straightforward, right? We gather together, at least two of us. We're Christians, so we are called by Jesus' name. We are Christ followers. And then we address our prayers, dear Heavenly Father, and we sign them in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pray in Jesus' name, which that's not actually modeled in Scripture to say in Jesus' name, but that's how we pray. But what I would like to suggest is that there's more at work here in these two verses than what might be seen at face value. And a couple of clues or a couple of tips for effective Bible reading, if you're new at reading the scriptures, or even if you've been reading the Bible for a long time and just need some refreshers, uh, two of the main tips that will improve your ability to understand what's going on in the scriptures and interpret it accurately. The first is context, and the second are repeated words and ideas. Context and then repeated words and ideas. Context just means we don't look at just two verses and extrapolate their meaning just from those two verses or one verse. It's tempting to do. We, we have the you know, Bible in a day, the daily Bible verse, and that's fine. But we really need to expand out and see where does this fall in a flow of thought? Where does this fall in the narrative of this book or this letter? Where does this fall in the bigger meta narrative of the scriptures? And that takes a lifetime of practice. But just knowing I need to at least look at what's around that passage to get a sense of what's going on here. And then secondly, repeated words and ideas. This is a very common tool that's used by a lot of ancient writers, ancient Near Eastern in particular, for communicating uh, a point. So let's do that with this passage. Let's expand it out a few verses on either side and look at Matthew 15, uh, 18, verses, verses 15 through 22. Matthew 18, 15 through 22. Again, Jesus speaking. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times and other vers versions even say 70 times, seven times. 
All right, so if we were in a small group, we would do this Socratically, ask some questions to get to the, to the point, but for the sake of this setting and time, let me just jump straight to it. You might notice that verses 15 at the beginning and verse 21 towards the end have a repeated idea, a repeated phrase. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and, you and him alone, etc. You jump down to verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, Jesus just had this beautiful teaching in between, but Peter's looping on this idea of forgiving a brother that sinned against him. And this idea of being sinned against frames everything that comes in the middle. You guys tracking with me so far? Okay, let me put this up in a diagram to explain. Now, this is called a chiasm. And this is an ancient Near Eastern literary tool that's used to make a point and to tie themes together, tie ideas together. And what you have in the, in the West, where Western thinkers, is we're typically linear, where A leads to B, leads to C, D, E, F, and eventually you get to Z. Uh, but ancient Near Eastern writers often do this reflexive pattern where they lay out a series of ideas and then they walk them back in reverse to make a point. So you get A leads to B, leads to C, leads back to B, leads back to A. And we see this in this passage where the, the bread, if you will, of the sandwich is this idea that starts in verse 15 and goes through 18, that when your brother sins against you, you restore him. Jesus is giving a very practical instruction here on how to restore a relationship when you've been hurt. He's talking about how to gain your brother back, not punish them or enact some vendetta against them. In verse 16, because later he'll say, again I say to you, and that should always clue us in, that's in verse 19, should clue us in to something that has come before. In verse 16, he says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you jump down to verse 18, he says, truly I say to you. Now he's speaking to his disciples, and in English we don't have a second person plural. So in Texas we made one up. What is it? Y'all, right? So essentially verse 18 could read, truly I say to y'all, whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You guys, you all, speaking to a collective whole. And there's a lot in this passage, but for the sake of our teaching today, what, what Jesus is doing is he's establishing a connection between unity and authority. That where there is unity, there's authority. In verse 16, he's saying, hey, if there's a relational breakdown and you can't restore it just one-on-one, -on -one, then bring two or three others with you who are in agreement about the nature of reconciliation and ultimately, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So he takes this very practical relational example. He says, if there's agreement, you're going to have power not just in your tangible relationships, but there's, a, there's a, a, a spiritual dimension to your authority when there's agreement among you. You guys catching that? Okay. When you jump down to verse 21, the other end of the sandwich, the other piece of bread, Peter picks back up on this and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and forgive him? And Jesus says, basically, way more than you expect to. And what Jesus is saying here is we're not maintaining bitterness and unforgiveness towards other people, especially other believers. Okay, but the point of a chiasm often is to point to the middle, and it ties these themes together. So you have this very horizontal relational theme in the first few verses and the last couple of verses. And then right in the middle is the meat of the teaching, what Jesus is trying to get at in verses 
19 and 20. So verse 19, he says, again, I say to you, because he's just said, if two of you agree in the context of a relational difficulty, he's saying, now again, I'm saying the same thing. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask in prayer, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So he's connecting these two ideas. And then this is the main thrust in verse 20, Jesus's Selah moment to his disciples. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The main point of this whole teaching that he's been doing, very practical relational teaching, but now he's getting to a spiritual aha moment for the disciples. And this would have been probably a little confusing for the disciples because he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And if I was hearing that, I would have thought, well, I'm with you now. But Jesus was pointing forward to a day where he would not be physically present anymore with his disciples, but he would be present by his spirit. And he's saying, when you gather in my name, I will be present with you. So what does it mean to be in Jesus's name? That seems to be right at the center of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And it is what we need to focus on to unpack the rest of the passage. Well, in that time, a name represented the whole person. It was their whole being, their whole reputation. It wasn't just the name tag name, like my name is Mick. It has four letters. That would represent everything that I am. So when Jesus says, when you gather in my name, I'm with you, what he is saying is that when you walk in my way, when you represent me, when you love and treat others in the same manner that I do, that's where I want to be. When you live in the same way that I live, representing me, living and walking in my name, I will be in your midst. So what is that manner? He's just given a couple of examples. Uh, Part of Jesus' way, what it means to be in his name, is to seek reconciliation, is to forgive way more than we expect to forgive. So already he's hinting that if you harbor unforgiveness and bitterness... And then you come to a life group or a prayer meeting, and you do the spiritual things. You say the spiritual things. You raise your hand. You pray with faith. You're not necessarily in my name. You're inconsistent. You're incongruent with my way. Do you guys, are you guys picking up on this? This is a really important teaching that Jesus is, that Jesus is giving here. So what else? What else is Jesus' manner? What does it mean to be in his name? Philippians 2, 1 through 8. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you find yourself divided from anybody? Is there anything that has elevated itself above our identity in Christ? Do nothing from selfish ambition. We should all just breathe that one in for a moment. Do nothing from selfish ambition if we want to be in Jesus' name. Think about that in the context of a marriage. We've had plenty of opportunity this week to think of that in context of marriage. Or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Your roommates, your kids, your coworkers, your boss. Considering their needs above your own, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
Who are you serving? Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, origin of Alexander was, Alexandria was a, an early church historian and scholar, and he wrote this in the early third century just to show this is an ancient idea. He said, the reason why we do not achieve our desires and prayers is our own fault. We do not agree either in our thoughts or in our way of life. Besides, if we are the body of Christ, then we must practice the harmony that comes from God's music so that when we are gathered in Christ's name, Christ may be in our midst, who is God's wisdom and word and power. So if we are practicing a way that is contrary to Jesus and then come together to pray, we are not experiencing the fullness of the presence and the power of Jesus that he promises in the scriptures. Now, the, the opposite is true. When we are, not perfectly, but when we are progressing in the way of Jesus, owning up where we fall short, growing in his way, seeking his way and his manner in our lives, the way that we treat one another, then when we come together, there is an expectation that the presence of Jesus is going to be manifest in our midst. And that when we pray in agreement with one another, we will see the efficacy of our prayers. We'll see the outcome, the result that God has promised in his word. That's a big deal. So as I help direct the discipleship school, uh, we're going to have a little discipleship school moment here in the building. And we're going to pause for 30 seconds. You're going to turn to somebody and just very briefly, what is standing out to you so far? Ready, go. 30 seconds. What's standing out to you so far? Short and sweet. Ten more seconds. Main point. All right. Um, this is seventh inning stretch. Go ahead and stand up with me. We've been praying the Lord's Prayer together as part of our sermon series. And so we're going to do that now instead of at the beginning because... Uh, we're going to go into a uh, short discussion on the Lord's Prayer, but here's how we're going to do it. We're not going to say it all at once in one voice. Uh, what you're going to do is turn to that same person you were just talking to, and you're going to pray this together for about a minute, all right? So that could just be one person praying and the other person agreeing. It could be one person prays half, the other person prays half. And by the way, if you're new to Antioch this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, just jump on in or feel free to stand back and observe. We know we do things differently. Uh, jump into a life group. We can help explain everything that's going on. Um, but uh, jump in there together. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Take about a minute. Uh, pray it together. Feel free to expand on it. Pray it with your heart and with full faith. Go for it.
as you finish, you can take a seat. If you're still praying, keep praying. That's fine. You can feel free to take another moment. All right, so this is how the Lord taught us to pray. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the reason we're doing this now is because I want to show you the structure of the Lord's Prayer is actually another chiasm, just like we saw in Matthew 18. Let's put up that graphic as well. I'm not going to spend as much time here, but essentially you can see what it begins with and ends with is this idea of the glory of God, the kingdom of God. Right, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and it ends. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And you move in one layer, and you have this idea of God, give us something and keep us from something. Give us our daily bread. Keep us from evil uh, and, and temptation. And then right smack dab in the middle, what do we find again? Forgiveness, the same theme where God, uh, Jesus, who is God, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, this relational God communicating to us that this is a really big deal. This idea of the horizontal relationships in your life as the gateway, the portal, that as we ask for forgiveness and repair a relationship with God, as we extend forgiveness, that that then becomes the the entrance point, the doorway into the other parts of the Lord's Prayer. Possibly we're not seeing breakthrough in prayer because we haven't dealt with the forgiveness issue in our hearts. And ultimately the idea is to get to the glory of God, the kingdom of God invading earth, and Jesus is saying here, in this ancient Near Eastern literary structure, that the gateway is forgiveness. God forgiving us for our sins and then extend, us extending that same grace. Actually, it's not the same. The grace that God has extended to us pales in comparison to the grace, uh, than the grace that we need to extend to one another. But this is the gateway. And there's lots of other places we see this connection between prayer and relationships in Scripture. Here's just a couple of examples. Isaiah 58, 3 and 4 uh, and, and following. The nation of Israel saying, why have we fasted and you see it not, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God's response, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger. Anybody blamed anybody recently? And speaking wickedness. And God is saying, that's what's blocking you from being heard in your prayers. Now, of course, God always hears us. But he's saying, I'm not responding fully because there's a blockage in how you're treating one another. Zechariah 7, 9 and following. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor, essentially the marginalized, the disenfranchised. Let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. As I called and they would not hear, so they called, they prayed and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. To bring it back into the New Testament, 
This is a deeply convicting verse for me uh, often. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Don't get hung up there. We don't have time to break it down today. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Hindered. So why? What's going on here? This connection consistently through Scripture of this idea of our heart posture towards other people and our effectiveness in prayer. Well, bottom line, God is a relational God. He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing in himself in perfect harmony in a way that we can't conceive of in our human minds. And out of that unity, out of that love and that oneness, he creates mankind in his image to have perfect unbroken fellowship with him and with one another. But sin has ruptured those relationships. And that's why Jesus came to repair relationship between us and God, Father, forgive us, but also to repair relationship between one another. And essentially, God is saying here that if we don't walk in the way of the Holy Spirit's conviction, the reparation of our human relationships, then he's saying, you're not gathering in my name. You're coming to me under the wrong pretense if you come to me with strained relationships. Now, again, we can't control the outcomes of our relationships. That's why the scripture says, as far as it belongs to us to be at peace with all men, not to be at peace with all men, but to at least make the effort in our soul to forgive, to bless, and to seek reconciliation. God's saying, you don't get me if you don't walk in that way. You don't understand me. You aren't gathering in my name. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 5, if you come to the altar and your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, go first be reconciled, and then come back and offer your gift. This seems to be a really big deal to God. So to help you out, uh, we have a T-chart just to summarize just these few passages. There's so much more that we can say. If you know me, you know I like charts. So just from these few passages, what does it mean to gather in Jesus's name? Well, it means that we go directly to the person. And again, these don't sound like super spiritual things. How do you have a, a deeply spiritual prayer life? There's some very practical things that are being asked of us. We go directly to a person instead of triangulating relationships. It's crazy to think that our blockage in prayer might not be our lack of faith, but our habit of triangulation, where we refuse to go directly to somebody. Instead, we talk about that relationship with everybody else and poison multiple other relationships in the process. To be in Jesus' name means to address sin for restoration rather than exposing others' sin to shame them. It means to speak the truth in love rather than avoiding confrontation. Again, it means forgiving more often than expected rather than harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. It means that we consider others' needs before our own rather than using people for personal gain. It means we bless rather than quarrel. We pursue empathy and understanding rather than demanding others conform to us, and so on and so forth. And really, we just look at the life of Jesus. This is what it means to pray in his name, where two or three are gathered in his name. He is in our midst with us. So here's the lunch discussion question. If you go out to lunch after this, uh, feel free to evaluate how I did. That's what we all tend to do. Uh, but after that, here's a question for you. So you can point the finger inward. What one action can you take this week to repair a relationship? 
What one action can you take this week to repair a relationship? You might need to go directly to somebody who's hurt you. You might need to pray in advance to get your heart for them and not against them. Uh, You might need to just simply forgive somebody internally. Let them off the hook and put them on God's hook. And like the, the author of Lamentations, you may not feel forgiving, but it's an act of the will, a conscious choice of the will to forgive. Uh, you may give an employee a raise if you're a business owner, uh, even at your own expense. You might celebrate someone else's good fortune if your coworker got the raise that you'd hoped for, got the blessing, you got the promotion. You might get to celebrate them this week and celebrate their advantage. Uh, You might just sit down and learn something about a loved one and stop talking long enough to get into somebody else's world and ask good questions. But what's one action you can take this week to repair a relationship? And in closing, what's the fruit? What's the fruit of walking in Jesus' way, of gathering in Jesus' name? Again, the expectation is when we do, when we're walking in Jesus' way, again, not perfectly, but in process together, The expectation is intimacy with God at a deeper level. Intimacy with God. Rick Buescher sent me this quote uh, from the desert fathers and mothers from the early uh, 4th, 5th centuries. Any way of praying is good as long as the intention is to grow in relationship with God. He is the prize. His presence, in his presence is fullness of joy. You know, I was thinking back on a time when uh, we were, my wife and I were privileged to work on a team, as a part of a team that Blake and Marcy Hartsock led. A lot of you know them. They're our team leaders in, uh, in London. And they did a great job of just modeling what it means to be in Jesus' name, the way they lived with integrity, the way they lived with humility. And then they created this environment on our team that, that invited us into the same practice, and it was such a beautiful time. We went about three or four years or several even in this room that were part of that team. And we had some just such sweet and intimate encounters with God together, as well as some powerful ones. And I was thinking in particular of, of one uh, day school retreat that we took out to Three Mountain Retreat Center. Which if you haven't been there, you're missing out. Uh, rustic but beautiful encounters with God out there. And the first night of worship, Friday night, there was one girl in the, in the room who clearly was uncomfortable, uh, was kind of balled up, crying, not because God was touching her necessarily. It just seemed like she was terrified. Like, what have I gotten myself into? Um, people tried to pray for her, but she just was really walled off. And so together we prayed that night as a staff after the, the worship time and just prayed for her by name, asking God to encounter her. And the next night we started our worship set, praying, and same thing. She's just kind of curled up in a, in a ball in her chair. And I was just waiting. I was, any minute, I was like, she's going to bolt. There's just no way she's going to stick this out. But a couple people went over and prayed for her. And we were just praying and worshiping. And all of a sudden, it was very startling. But all of a sudden, there was a scream. And I look over, and she jumps up out of her chair. And she starts clapping wildly, going, he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And she starts galloping, literally not skipping, galloping around the room, clapping, shouting, laughing, crying. And it was amazing. I didn't even know what was going on, but the atmosphere of the room shifted. Another girl got delivered of a demonic oppression, which again, if you get, whatever, we talk about it in life group, but it's just a powerful time. And later found out that girl that had that breakthrough, she had essentially 
been walking with God, but that summer after she applied for the D school, really began to doubt her faith and just felt like if there is a God, there's no way he can forgive me. There's no way that he could really love me. And so she was wrestling. She was kind of trying to stick it out at the, at the retreat, but um, was just wrestling with so much emotional turmoil and pain. And she said that as those people were praying for her, it was like they got tuned out. And all of a sudden, it was like the voice of God in her soul said, I see you, I'm real, I forgive you, and I love you. Now, she'd probably been told that a thousand times, but it was as if God penetrated and pierced down to the, the core of her being and it set her free. And it, that coming on the heels of gathering in Jesus's name. At the end of that night, we were worshiping and, and it was just beautiful and, and sweet. And then the band finished, but nobody moved. And nobody said to not move, but everybody just kind of sat there in the, this awe, the presence of God. And still nobody moved. But then uh, Eric Smith, you know, Eric, he just started to pray out, just giving God glory and honor. And other people started to lift up their voices. And it just turned into this spontaneous People were just singing their own song. Nobody was doing instruments, but this beautiful worship that sounded harmonious, even though nobody was leading. And it was amazing. But then all of a sudden, as I'm worshiping with my eyes closed, I hear hundreds of other voices. You know, I'm not given to spiritual experiences. I'm, I'm very analytical. And so I, I literally opened my eyes looking for the source of the sound, and I can't see anything, but there are distinctly hundreds of other voices in the room. I was like, man, the veil between heaven and earth is really thin right now. It was just amazing. You didn't want it to end. And it just kind of kept going on for a while, and eventually, as spontaneously as it started, it ended. And again, everybody just sat there in quiet, and then nobody knew what to do, so everybody started migrating over to the snack table. So we're standing there unwrapping Oreos and popping open the Sprite, and somebody goes, did you guys hear that? And three other people were like, you heard it too? And we were all like, it was real. Like, I, it wasn't just me. It was real. We all heard this angelic intervention, this kind of point of connection between heaven and earth. Not that that'll happen. Yes, praise God. Not that that'll happen every time. Let it be. Why not? But as we seek to walk in Jesus's way, as we gather in his name, as we align with him, may our expectation grow for our families. This is the very thing we need for our life groups, for our communities, and an infiltration of the presence of God into our hot mess of our lives, the presence and the power of God. Would you guys go ahead and stand with me? Ultimately, this is impossible. It's an impossible task to walk in Jesus's way, to gather in his name consistently, which is why we need the Holy Spirit. So it's in a moment, uh, prayer teams, if you come on down to the front. Uh, we wanna pray for each other. Pray for each other to have the power to walk in Jesus's way, to have the courage to forgive. And I wanna give an invitation for that specifically because unforgiveness and bitterness is such a blockage in our soul when we hang on to that. And believe me, it is so hard. This is not easy. I am not trivializing or minimalizing any of the pain and the trauma and the abuse and the betrayal that you have incurred. But what I do know is that to hold on to it, and you might need counseling and there'll be process and that's fine, but to hold on to it will block the grace of God from your life. 
So I just want to lead us and just even invite you to close your eyes and all of us have people who, who hurt us. But if that's you specifically, I want you to just call their name to mind or that face to mind. And just by the grace of God, and in your mind's eye, look at them and just let them off the hook. I forgive you. You will probably won't feel forgiving, but just as a statement of the will, I forgive you. God, I'm trusting them to you. Just even right now, take the courage to let somebody off the hook. And as, as people are responding that way, feel free to come on down to the front. If you need prayer for anything that we've talked about, relational or otherwise, effective prayer or not, please take advantage of somebody putting a hand on their shoulder. You go ahead and respond in, in that way.